When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late-night legend Jon Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Texas AG Ken Paxton sought to gain the identity of trans people in Texas. We have an enlightening show today. Representative Pramila Jayapal will talk to us about leading the Progressive Caucus and working with President Biden. Then we'll talk to United States Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo, who will talk to us about how the administration is easing inflation and bringing manufacturing back to the United States. First, we have iNewspaper columnist and host of the Origin Story podcast, and oh God, what now? As well as author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't, the one, the only, Ian Dunt. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Ian Dunt. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Our special European correspondent. <laughs> we don't pay you, but no. you are a correspondent. And I've, I've just been instantly promoted from British to all of Europe now. <laughs> well, so. Yes, because we want to ask you about, uh, since nothing happens in your little island, but that's not true. You have a new... Prime Minister. We do. How's it going? Things happen here. It's just that nothing <laughs> good ever happens here. That's, that's the crucial <laughs> distinction. Tell us how it's going. Well, it's okay. I mean, he's he's not completely mad. And right. He's not sort of violent with his lies. And therefore, he is, of course, far superior to the last two, uh, arguably three prime ministers that we've had. He is, however, 
I mean, really quite dreary and inept and unimaginative <laughs> and misleading, it has to be said. He's misleading within the normal realms of political deception. But nevertheless, that is what he is. Explain to us what you're thinking of when you talk about misleading. So, for instance, uh, we are currently being absolutely ruined by strikes. I mean, the, the extent of the industrial action that's taking place here is really just a sort of couple of steps away from a general strike. I mean, today alone, I can tell you that, you know, the postal service is on strike, the nurses are on strike, the ambulance drivers are on strike, the border force agency is going to be in, on strike over Christmas, meaning that the airports will pretty much ground to a standstill. Oh, and again? the railways are pretty much constantly on strike. I mean, they're not exactly striking today, but they were striking earlier this week and they'll be striking again later on in the week. But what about the baggage handlers in Heathrow? Because that <laughs> no. I experienced firsthand this summer and I have questions. <laughs> Well, for some insane reason, they've decided not to strike. They're like the only people that are still working this week, basically. Literally, the country just does not work. I mean, that, that yeah. is the point that we're at right now. It's like nothing actually works. We've degraded ourselves sort of back to pretty much where we were in the 1970s, the sick man of Europe, you know, the country that just cannot function. Rishi Sunak's response to this is to basically say, well, look, I mean, there's, there's no negotiating with these people. We can't afford to pay them any more money or else there'll be more inflation. So I'm just going to pass a bunch of laws that make it harder for people to strike. Now, that's not an out and out lie. But what it is, is profoundly deceptive, because the real question that he has to answer is, you know, if you are going to pay people more, you need to worry about inflation, sure. And the way to do that is taxation, to reduce demand through taxation, which gives you the money simultaneously to pay more to public sector workers who we need and who, frankly, are being impoverished to an intolerable right. degree by the extent of existing inflation. And that's why they're striking. Yeah, which is exactly why they're striking. So, I mean, those kind of serious political conversations where you actually, you know, are honest with people about the kind of trade-offs that are required, that's not the kind of thing he's prepared to go into. He just wants to talk tough, look tough, tell them we're going to get the army out and they can save your grandmother if she has a stroke. So don't worry about it and we'll pass some legislation against the strike. So he's deceptive. He's just not, you know, as habitual a liar as Boris Johnson. Wait, so you have all these people on strike. He doesn't want to negotiate with them for higher wages? Their, their view on higher wages is essentially that it will lead to a spiral towards inflation, towards ever greater inflation, which in and of itself is not an unreasonable argument. The thing is that you can, you know, you can take several actions that will dampen inflation on the basis of paying public sector workers more. You can, for instance, borrow the money and then make sure that you raise the interest rates in order to dampen demand that way. Or you can tax more and reduce demand that way and use that money to pay public sector workers more. So there are avenues right. to take, but we're still in the business of sort of this sort of crazed, almost pathological machismo to the manner mm. in which we conduct politics of pretending everything's simple, pretending you can just batter your way through all sort of political obstacles. And that's really ended us where we are. Now, that's a very strange thing to say about Rishi Sunak, who himself looks, right. sort of looks like, like the head boy in school who's suddenly been allowed <laughs> to become prime minister for the day. So he's right. very, very eager and very excited and thinks he's acting out the part of what a prime minister would look at. And he spends his entire time talking about just how tough he is, how weak all of his opponents are. And then you look at him and think, well, you're really very thin and very short, and I'm not entirely <laughs> sure that you would win in a fight yourself. <laughs> uh, and that, in the end, is the sort of small man syndrome that we've ended up in politically in the country. And ultimately... 
your inflation in the UK is much, much worse in the, than in the US, right? That's right. It's worse than almost anywhere. There's a few countries that got it worse than us, but it, it's, it's, it's hitting... Like Venezuela. Yes, exactly. All the other, you know, great countries that we want to emulate and replicate in any way that we can. And that's partly because, you know, we got hit by the same things that everyone else got hit by, you know, Putin, the war in Ukraine, the impact on energy prices, the sort of crazed spasms in global trading patterns because of COVID. However, we also decided to add to that by virtue of Brexit and make the situation as pernicious and damaging as it could possibly be. One of the things that Brexit did was it put up trading obstacles in the forms of customs, taxation, regulatory checks with our largest trading partner. The Brexiters like to pretend that Europe is like some kind of strange alien entity with which we can never negotiate. But it is, in fact, this massive massive consumer market, larger than any other on earth, right there on our doorstep. And all of our trade naturally goes there, except that all of it now costs more to send. And that has absolutely devastated small and medium-sized businesses. It's made everything more expensive. And it's led to labor shortages as Europeans go home and think, well, you know what, I don't need to do, I don't need to put up with this if you're going to treat me this way. And that in itself then leads to ever greater sort of prices. So our inflation is partly the result of the international sort of impact and partly the result of the bed that we made ourselves. Right. Yeah, that's what it seems like to me. And there's no world. So here you are, you're in Europe, it's like America leaving NAFTA. And I mean, I do think <laughs> the sit right. I mean, it's the it's it's ridiculous, but it also is like this situation where you have all these pressures, domestic pressures. You have this large anti-globalism. I don't even want to say the word globalism because mm-hmm. it's been so corrupted by the mm-hmm. alt right. But like, you have this anti sort of globalism, and that and the solution to it is to cut yourself off because in the hopes that it might help manufacturing at home, but it's not, right? Oh, it doesn't help manufacturing. I mean, the the manufacturing, you know, if you you look at what we do with cars, what we do with airplanes, those parts are going all over Europe. You know, they go on a just-in-time basis from Germany and France to the UK and off. You just cut yourself off from, from the manufacturing system. Really, but they didn't even have that kind of sophisticated an appraisal when they called for Brexit. Their real argument for Brexit was, we want to get rid of immigrants. That was the real argument, the central argument. That's why they did it. And their secondary one was this thing that I think hits countries when they're feeling insecure, which is just this sort of, this notion of our weakness our inability to have everything we want must be due to internal enemies. You know, these weak liberals, metropolitan, cosmopolitan liberals, you know, who are there degrading the nation, allowing all the immigrants in, taking away from, you know, the great sort of imperial Britain. That sort of sense of of just insecurity and a search for enemies and, and a sense that if you just will for something hard enough, you can make it come true. <laughs> and, and that kind of that kind of mentality is still, even under Rishi Sunak, who is far more sensible and sane, basically, than his predecessors, it's still there, this kind of fantasy land, nasty-minded politics. And on that basis, that's the reason that Britain is failing. That's the reason when you look outside the window, that the country simply doesn't work, because it is being run by people who aren't 
properly prepared to address complicated problems and come up with viable solutions, but are instead engaged in this really grotty game of fantasy land politics. What happens now? Do you have any good news for us about the UK? Yeah, well, the good news is, now, you know what? I do, I do. I think that this year in Britain was the year that rationality returned to a certain extent. It didn't return in the political class, but it has returned (laughs) among the public. Actually, you know what? It's sort of happening in the US too, so explain. Well, you guys seem sort of far more advanced. And, and to be honest, by looking at what was happening with your elections this year, it, it seemed like a similar process was taking place. But like people, yeah. people love letting the public off the hook. You know, it's always like the public can't be wrong, it's just the politicians. But the public are wrong all the time, very, very frequently indeed, and, and, yeah. and quite deeply so. And they yeah. were over Brexit and over the response to Brexit, which is just, can you please pretend that everything's simple? Now, I think that something changed when we got hit in the aftermath of COVID and Ukraine and the Brexit impacts, which is suddenly political conversation went from this stuff about culture and identity and tribes and just returned to the very, very elementary question of how much money do you have in your pocket and is it less money than you used to have? And people's answer to that question is yes, I can afford less things. I'm actually quite poverty stricken here. Energy prices are going through the roof. Inflation is very, very high. Public services are terrible and the government doesn't seem to know what it's doing. And the rationality, the instinctive rationality of self-interested economic assessments has had quite a pulverizing effect on the popularity of the Conservatives. I mean, you look at them now, they've been 20 points behind in the polls for months now. And it's only been a year since they were riding high in the polls. People were saying, you know, Labour will never get in power, the Conservatives will never be thrown out. It looked like they were undefeatable. Well, suddenly, everything has switched over. The lies are shown up for the lies that they are, and they are talked about by the public as the lies that they are. And it feels, even though the political system hasn't changed, the government hasn't changed, it feels like the public debate has returned to a place that values reason and empiricism over the delusions of sort of populist egomaniacs. And that's because of the royal family. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) I'm aware Is Andrew going to go to jail? Is Andrew going to go to jail? All conversations that you and I have are basically <laughs> just you waiting to make me talk about the subject of the royal family, which, as you know, I know almost nothing about, but is the only real topic of... <laughs> but basically, Andrew is never going to go to jail, right? Uh, probably not. I, I, I don't imagine that he, he will. That seems quite unlikely to me. I think he'll continue to live a life of sort of shame-faced hypocrisy and tucked away like a naughty secret under a family dining table. Can you live with that? I mean, I don't know. I would like to see him go to jail, but it seems like none of those people are ever going to go to jail. The, I mean, it's just so unfair. The Epstein people. Talk to me about sort of greater Europe. What is happening in greater Europe, which you guys are no longer a part of? <laughs> yes. Well, indeed. It's, it's, it's a mixed picture, really. There's elements that have been quite shameful, I think, and that require a sort of real moment of recognition from, I think, especially Germany over the Ukraine war. And Germany, for its own very specific reasons, has always had this attitude of like, look, you've got to deal with Russia. You have to talk with Russia. You have to, you, you have to try and make this relationship work. They, they sort of define themselves in opposition to the Cold War mentality that you would have had in the US or the UK. And I think really this year is when that properly collapsed. You could argue similarly for for France, which is a bit more subtle in the manner in which it sort of dealt with things with Russia. However, when the moment came, Europe behaved firmly and it behaved quickly. 
Like Germany has been sending the equipment that is needed for Ukraine. There has been an acceptance of trying to bring Ukraine slowly, admittedly, but into the EU. It has to be a slow process. They have no way of doing things quickly, but they're doing it with as much conviction as they can. And I think to look at the practical consequences of what are going on in Europe is, is quite complicated and not altogether positive. However, when you look at what Ukraine wants, which is membership of the European Union, there is a, an emotional reminder there of what Europe is, of where it came from, of, you know, the, from the ashes of the Second World War, of, you know, countries like France and Germany looking at each other and going, look, we've done this twice now. And if we do this a third time, there's not going to be a world left. And so we will build something where nations cooperate rather than try to conquer one another. Mm -hmm. And we will cooperate on the basis of our economy as well as our politics. That dream, which is a dream of security and pragmatism and Western values, has sort of been rekindled. Like the emotional aspect of Europe has been rekindled by Ukraine, even while materially and politically it served to complicate things. So end of history, part two. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't <laughs> the go that far. end, end, end of history. <laughs> I don't know whether it feels the same there, but but here, you know, spending the year just looking at what's going on in Ukraine, looking at what the women are doing in Iran, there's a reminder yeah. there of what the West stands for, of individual freedom and democracy and reason in the pursuit of politics. And given that both your country and mine have been acting like the most blithering, sort of wet-panted fools for the last sort of six to eight years, <laughs> you sort of think, well, look, there's a reminder of what it is that we're supposed to stand for and that other countries around the world want to emulate, that people who are oppressed think, yes, yeah. well, I would quite like individual freedom for myself as well. And that we might think maybe we have a responsibility to not act like sort of national clown cars and start to conduct ourselves with the kind of seriousness that the historic moment deserves. Now I feel like you're being earnest and it's very <laughs> moving. And so I want, I almost want to cut you off now before you say something funny again, because the earnestness I have, like I'm having like a West Wing moment with you here. <laughs> let's, let's not get carried away. Unity ticket, baby. <laughs> but yeah, no, so interesting. Can you talk to us a little bit about the Germany situation? The uh, arrests of the alt-right, the whatever that was. No, this is fascinating. I mean, that was probably like the most shocking news that I've seen in weeks. What's interesting to note about what's going on in Germany is, is the manner in which it operates in the same way in each country, but with sort of national differences, right? So, yeah. so the far right groups that are operating in Germany are talking mostly with sort of volkish Reich content. Now, th that is actually, people might associate that with, you know, World War II, with Nazism. It's not that. It's the sort of pre-Nazi far right of Germany, mm -hmm. the kind of blood and iron, Bismarckian sort of sense of imperialism, you know, a nation forged in the metal of war with France, that kind of older sense of Germany. But what's noticeable is the way that those qualities got mixed up with all this very modern, very online kind of QAnon-tinged, paedophile-obsessed conspiracy theory gibberish. And that tells you something about the way this stuff operates as it sweeps around the world. You know, it's almost like, you know, when you go to different countries and you, you go to a McDonald's and they always have like one burger that's specifically for that country. Like, you know, in Switzerland, it's got like Gruyere cheese in it. And in India, it's got like mango sauce or something. Well, that's basically how this kind of far right <laughs> thought operates. You know, it's, it's typically one thing like the QAnon nonsense all around the place, but with these very localized 
sort of flavors and distinctions that you see. And that's pretty much what we saw in Germany with the far right. But it gives you that sense that Germany has had and has been for obvious historical reasons, much more acutely intelligent mm -hmm. about, I think, which is that the real threat to most Western societies does not come from radical Islam. It typically comes right. from the far right, operating among the elites as well as on the streets themselves. And it was a good reminder of that fundamental truth. Do we think if that's happening in Germany, that's got to be happening everywhere, right? That's probably true. I mean, there are countries that have proved quite immune to the populist and far right. I mean, Portugal is one of them, which is interesting, given that it was a you know sort of right-wing conservative dictatorship just a few decades ago. Um, right. But it, it really doesn't have much sort of time for it. But you do see it elsewhere. You certainly see it in France. You do see it in Spain. You see it in the Netherlands. You know, across Europe, one of the one of the odd things about Europe is it's so it has an image of being extremely advanced and sophisticated in its politics. But when you travel around there, when you speak to political journalists around Europe, they often say, "Well, we have a kind of a bigger far right problem than you have in the UK." You know, it, it, in terms of people and in terms of the severity of the discourse, we just manage to predominantly freeze it out. But they can't always freeze it out. I mean, if you look at what's happening in Italy right now, Italy is being run by a woman who, you know, comes from fascist lineage. Oh, is yeah. she a fascist now? Probably not quite. You wouldn't quite use the word, but she comes from fascist lineage. And some of the rhetoric that she has, particularly around the family, is fascist rhetoric. I mean, that, that, that's what it is. It's, at the very least, it's fascistic. You know, and, yeah. and you see similar sort of moments across Europe. You see the same in Austria, um, in various countries where, where there's that flutter, that opportunity for the far right. It's mostly been quelled. It's mostly been stopped. You know, this year it was stopped in, in France, although it came closer than any of us would have liked. Yeah. But, but it's there and it's there across Europe. This is so interesting. And um, yeah, the Maloney stuff is really scary. Also, I've read and again, I mean, it, do you think it's true that she's sort of targeting journalists? in Italy? Yes, there's certainly an element of that. She has now tried to portray herself as far more mainstream than she really is, by essentially making a sacrifice on the Putin front and on the EU right. front. They almost all make that sacrifice. Le Pen did exactly the same thing. Le Pen also wants to get out of the EU. She also absolutely loves Putin. But she learned quickly enough that there's two things you have to shut up about if you want to win any kind of election in Europe. And it's like, shut up about leaving the EU, because they've all sat there for the last five years watching Britain make an absolute tit of itself. And right. thought, well, that doesn't look like a very good idea. <laughs> And shut up about Putin, right. you know, who is now seen, obviously, as the sort of the villain in a superhero comic. So on that basis, she knows what to be quiet about. But her fundamental instincts are perfectly plain to see and have been repeated through long, regular verbal utterances of her values. So, I mean, we right. know what she's about. We know the kind of people she'll target. And as soon as these guys get in, as it was in 1930s, so it is now, when fascists and those on the far right get in, they target minorities, they target journalists, and they use any ensuring violence as a form of communication strategy to demonstrate their impotency. So on that basis, yeah, we would look with quite a lot of wariness about the way she's going to behave over the next four years. Oh, Jesus. Um, Gee, I, I had an uplifting moment before. We could have left it there, know, but I now we're down in the depths again. I should have let you, uh, but you know, anyway, I'm very grateful to have you. That was so interesting and, and really important. And also, you're just so much fun. Ah, thank you very much. Merry Christmas. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. 
it's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Representative Pramila Jayapal represents Washington's 7th Congressional District. Welcome to Fast Politics, Representative Jaipal. It is so great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's great to have you. And I want to talk to you about my favorite sort of 
saying, you say you are a Biden convert. (laughs) I'm sorry, I love it. I think a lot of progressives feel that way too. Can you talk to us about what that means? Yeah, absolutely. You know, he wasn't my first or my second choice in the election, but when he got elected, he got elected in part through a really intentional effort to engage progressives before he got elected through the task forces, Biden-Sanders task forces, and I led one of those on healthcare. And then when he got in, I have to say that the agenda that he ran on is the agenda that he governed on. He put forward really bold ideas. He didn't shy away from them. He really did what he said he was going to do for the diverse coalition that helped elect him. And I think that he is somebody who also values the people around him. And so the progressive appointments of people to the White House have also been phenomenal. These are people we work with all the time. Of course, his chief of staff, Ron Klain, understands that progressives make up half or more of the Democratic caucus, but certainly half of the legislative caucus. And so we have just had a really good relationship. Sometimes we're out in front and pushing for things that they can't give us. Sometimes we're right by their side, getting as much done as we can together. And sometimes we're pushing from behind. But the reality is this has been the most progressive president and Congress in my history, Molly. And so I'm proud to say I'm a Biden convert. Yeah. No, I think a lot of progressives feel that way. And and I mean, some of that was putting Bernie Sanders on budget, right? Correct. And I think that the progressive movement at large, right, when you think about the election and the fact that we had Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren as these really strong candidates who were putting forward ideas and then very engaged with the Biden administration after the election, I think was incredibly helpful. And he was respectful of this part of the party, which I find sometimes hasn't always been the case, but this is a really unusual relationship for us as progressives. And the fact that we in the progressive caucus in the house have gotten so organized and leveraged our power has also helped. They see that and they know that if they need to get something through, they need us on board. So it is both his intention, but also his ability to see what an important role we play and our power that all kind of comes together and makes it work. I want to talk to you about you sharing your story on the floor of the House because for HR 3648, this is an immigration. We are so sort of mired in immigration. Talk to us. You waited 17 years for a green card. Talk to our listeners about your own lived experience and the legislation. Yeah, well, I came to the United States when I was 16 years old by myself, and it was because my parents really felt like this was the place I would have the most opportunity. And my dad had 5,000 bucks in his bank account and used all of it to send me here. And it's been rough because I've never been able to bring my parents. So we live on continents. We always have, you know, I came on a student visa. I would, I am the only one um, in Congress, or at least one of very few, we haven't been able to fully determine this, but that has been on an H-1B visa. And I got it out of college because there was no other way for me to stay in the country other than to get a company to sponsor me for an employment-based visa. And I spoke a lot of languages. And so I was able to do it But the reality is the way the immigration system is put together, it takes a very long time for people to be able to access immigration to the United States. It took me 
17 years to become a citizen. And that was when waiting times were easier. But today, if you're from Mexico or you're from India, it can take up to 200 years to be able to get your green card. And so we need to change this and we can change it with the Eagle Act. And so I felt it was important to bring my own experience to bear because a lot of the immigration policies that we have and the anti-immigrant efforts of this country are not known to people. You know, people don't realize that it was very recent history when Indian nationals were not allowed to become U.S. citizens. It just took a Supreme Court case to change that. And that has sort of bled through into our immigration policies as well. And so while I hope, Molly, that we could get comprehensive, humane immigration reform, the reality is we have been pushing any opportunity we can to move forward principled compromises, things that don't set other communities back in order to set one community forward, but that recognizes that Immigration in the United States is constructed in these very narrow ways, and different communities are only able to access certain ways of getting into the United States. For Indians, that is employment-based visas and family-based visas. You know, for African nations, it's the diversity visa. For Latinos, you know, we know that we need pathway to citizenship and other ways that Latinos, for example, the farm worker bill, which primarily benefits Latinos, not only. So, you know, that's just the way it's constructed. So I hope we can get it done. Yeah, me too. It seems like it could get through Congress, at least right. it could get through the House right now. But do you think there are 10 Republicans who would support this? I do. There is a plan. I think Senator Grassley is on board with this. I think Senator McConnell, I believe, is on board with wow. this as well. You know, it passed in the last Congress, it passed with incredible bipartisan votes. Unfortunately, we've had a lot of Republicans peeling off. But this, the farm worker bill and hopefully DACA are three areas where I feel like we could potentially get Republican and Democratic votes to pass it. And so if if this were to go through, it would be a huge boon for certain communities, the farm worker bill. And again, we have a lot of rural areas across America where we need immigrant workers to do that labor. And we can't just continue to act like we don't and vilify immigrants. And so there are a lot of Republicans that are on board because they know to be true. Yeah. I mean, we have no solution now. So, I mean, there's nothing, right? Exactly. And that's the frustrating thing is that, you know, Molly, I was an activist for 20 years before coming into Congress for immigrant rights. So this is an issue I've worked on for a very long time and have lived experience with. And the thing is that in 2013, we had 67 bipartisan votes in the Senate, in the U.S. Senate, for comprehensive humane immigration reform. There were some bad things in that bill, but we held our noses and said, listen, we need to get this done. Let's do it. It would have been a path to citizenship and redoing the family immigration system and so many other things. But John Boehner wouldn't bring it up for a vote in the House because he knew it would pass. And Republicans wanted to continue to keep it out there as something to vilify and divide people across on. And that is their number one playbook, right? They're, they're, they just continue 
to vilify immigrants when the reality is that the country would shut down without the labor and the contributions of immigrant workers and immigrant families. And it's very discouraging, but I'm hoping that we can get a couple of these pieces done, which would be significant progress. And then we just keep working to get the whole thing done. Yeah, no, it's true. And you can't complain about a tight labor market and then say you don't want to have any immigrants. I mean, (laughs) exactly. One of the things you've been very vocal on is that Biden should run again. I think this is like a no brainer, but I am glad you've been saying this. And I'm curious, what's your thinking here? Well, my thinking is you reward a president who has gotten the most progressive legislation passed in the history of our recent history of our country with another term. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is I still believe that this is a very dangerous time in our country, and it is difficult to build the coalition that you need to win. And we still have Republicans who are insistent on denying that Biden is the legitimate president, you know, and are still following Trump off the deep end. And I do think that Joe Biden is somebody who can still pull together that very diverse coalition that brought him into office in 2020. He has a great record to run on. We as Democrats have a great record to run on. And I think we just need to continue to support him. I believe he's going to run. And I think that we need to get out there in the next two years and talk about all the work that we have been able to accomplish to move people forward so that their lives look different every morning, you know, and then show them the path to a 52 plus Senate and taking back the House and keeping the White House that allows us to do the things like codifying voting rights, codifying abortion rights, getting universal child care and pre-K. We were so close, Molly, to getting that done in Build Back Better. And I want to see the president finish the rest of his agenda. We all do, because it's the agenda that makes people feel like they can not just survive, but thrive. That was really heartbreaking, I have to say, to get so close and then to have that agenda foiled. It must have been really hard for you, too. It was very tough. And I kept saying to people, you know, this is not, I was very careful the whole time to call it the president's agenda because it was the president's agenda. It also happened to be a very progressive agenda, but we had 99% of Democrats on board and we just needed a couple more. (laughs) We weren't able to get that. And so that's why we need to build a 52 Senate so that we can make sure we get that done. The child tax credit, that is a progressive legislation that was only around for a little while, but it worked really, really well. Will you talk a little more about it and then it was allowed to expire? It was a huge priority of ours in the Progressive Caucus. Rosa DeLauro has been the champion of it, um, along with many others. And it showed us that poverty and hunger are actually policy choices bad policy choices, but they are policy choices. They do not have to be as they are. And the child tax credit was the perfect validation of that. By giving people a child tax credit, we cut hunger in America by 32%. We cut child poverty by 40%. And so, you know, for everybody who says, well, give us policies that work, we want things that work. We have shown that the child tax credit works. And it is much cheaper, by the way, to help people in this way and than it is to do all the other things that we try to do that lift people up out of poverty. And so this is both smart fiscally 
It is absolutely morally imperative and it works. And so the Republicans, of course, not a single vote for the American Rescue Plan from Republicans, even though they tried to take credit for it later. We knew we couldn't count on the Republicans. And unfortunately, we had to pass it through reconciliation and we couldn't get all 50 Democrats to agree. And so Senator Manchin did not want to continue with the child tax credit and Republicans refused to go along with it. And so it expired, but it is absolutely something that we need to continue. And we're working very hard to see how we can do that. It seems like such a no brainer. One of the false equivalencies that straight journalists like to make is that the progressives are the same as the Freedom Caucus or as the far right. Both sides have gone too far. Can you explain to our listeners why this is really silly? At best, silly. At worst, insulting. <laughs> yes, it is silly and offensive. And I'll tell you exactly why. The Republicans in the Freedom Caucus are the party that are supporting insurrectionists who attacked the United States Capitol in the worst assault on the U.S. Capitol since the War of 1812. They are supporting people who are anti-Semitic. They are supporting people who are election deniers, who do not believe that Joe Biden is a legitimate president, who want to undermine the Constitution. And to then equate that with progressives who want universal health care, want universal child care, want families to be able to have good wage jobs and benefits is absolutely ludicrous. You know, I was in Germany recently and uh, a couple months ago, and one of the leaders of a major party there said to me, you know, Bernie Sanders and progressives would be considered moderates in Europe yeah. because we have all those things. And I think that's really important. The Freedom Caucus is the party of no. Progressives are the party of yes. We are trying to push as hard as we can to make sure that working people, poor people, folks of color, people who live in rural areas who haven't been given the opportunities that sometimes we have in urban areas, that all of these folks are lifted up and that tomorrow is a brighter day for the next generation. That is absolutely not what the Freedom Caucus is about. So I always find that comparison ridiculous. And I'm really proud that in this last Congress, we may have even brought a lot of Democrats over to realizing that progressives are absolutely about pushing forward progress as much as we can. But we also know how to govern Mali. We know how to land. The yeah. And we are inspiring a lot of people across the country to know that we will stand up and fight for them. Progressives have been really organized and there hasn't been drama. Speaking of which, there's been a lot of drama on the Republican side today. They are wearing buttons that say, OK, for only Kevin. Is there a West Wing unity candidate world? I mean, or is that just fantasy? No, there's not going to be a, a, a unity candidate in that we're not going to have a Republican that Democrats vote for. I don't know if that was what you were asking, but yes, yes, that's not going to happen. But listen, it's quite delicious to watch because, <laughs> because so many people kept talking about Democrats in disarray. Well, here it is. Republicans in Bruin, Molly, right. they 
they do not have the advantage of a speaker like we had, um, Speaker Pelosi, who really knew how to manage a very diverse caucus. They are in a situation where Kevin McCarthy is allowing himself to be led by Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene, somebody who this weekend said that if she had been in charge of the insurrection, they would have been armed and they would have won. I just cannot even believe that he's promised her a gavel on the oversight committee. Mm -hmm. And that is the Republican Party today. That's the brand of the Republican Party. So he he has shown us uh, exactly where he's going. And I think it will paint a very sharp contrast with Democrats who created 10 million new jobs, who cut hunger and child poverty, who are making things in America again, who are really fighting for working people. Because at the end of the day, Molly, we're the party. Democrats are the party of freedom, family, and faith. Freedom for the right to vote, freedom for the right to make choices about our own bodies, freedom for economic security, family, because we want to keep families together. We believe in all kinds of families and we support families having the tools they need, like childcare and pre-K and all the other things. And faith, because we have abiding faith in our constitution, in our democracy, and we are going to stand up for it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you'll come back. Anytime, Molly. And thank you for all you do. I know you, our dear listeners, are very busy and you don't have time to sort through the hundreds of pieces of punditry each week. This is why every week I put together a newsletter of my five favorite articles on politics. If you enjoy the podcast, you will love having this in your inbox every Friday. So sign up at fastpoliticspod.com and click the tab to join our mailing list. That's fastpoliticspod.com. Gina Raimondo is the United States Secretary of Commerce. Welcome to Fast Politics, Gina Romando. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Very excited. So Rhode Island is like one of the places in my life. And I want to talk to you about you have a very interesting path to Commerce Secretary. Will you talk to us first about the story of your father and the watches? Yeah, definitely. Which is why I took this job in large yeah. part, because... You know, Rhode Island, you said you love Rhode Island. I, of course, love Rhode Island. You know, when I was a kid in Rhode Island in the 70s and 80s, manufacturing, jewelry manufacturing was a huge part of our state's economy. It seemed like all my friends' dads worked somewhere in a jewelry manufacturing company. And my dad worked at the Bull of a Watch company. They had over a thousand workers in that factory in Providence at the time in its heyday. And, you know, he'd get his carpool in the morning with his brown bag lunch and everyone in the car had a job at the factory. You know, he, he was, he was a metallurgist. Somebody just was felt really secure when I was a kid, you know, like one of his friends was a security guard. Another guy was a custodian, HR, like it worked for everyone's family. And then we watched the whole thing be dismantled and it was really hard. You know, I remember he would come home and tell my mom, they have a plan to dismantle this slowly and send all the jobs to China. And he was right. You know, it went from a thousand to 700 to 500 to 200. And eventually him and all of his buddies lost their job. And he was 56, had only worked there, you know, his whole career. I was in sixth grade. My brother and sister were in college. And it was just this like horrible pit in your stomach 
feeling every day because we didn't know what we were going to do. And it was happening to everyone. You know, suddenly the carpool, which seemed secure, was really insecure for everybody. And so that was a just like a really important part of who I am. And as governor, I spent all of my time trying to create good jobs in Rhode Island, including manufacturing jobs. And when the president called me and said, I want you to come work with me and rebuild American manufacturing. That was about halfway through your second term, right? Yeah, it was exactly halfway through my second term. I had been reelected in 2018 and I was talking to him just around this time, two years ago, actually, it was around Christmas time. I was a little reluctant because I was a sitting governor during COVID, but he said, like, let's let's rebuild manufacturing. Let's make things in America and create jobs for everyone. And I, I remember I called my brother and I was like, Tom, what do you think? And he said, dad would be so proud if you could be part of bringing back manufacturing. So for me, I believe in it, but, you know, I lived it. Bringing back manufacturing in America is more complicated than it sounds. I mean, and it sounds pretty complicated. And it involves the Cold War with China. Can you explain to us what that means for semiconductors and for more manufacturing in general? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know if I would agree with Cold War with China. Right. I mean, it's a bit dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. China has really took over a lot of manufacturing and pulling it back is a very complicated order. Big time. No, you're exactly right, Molly. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the we, the United States, we were just searching for cheaper and cheaper labor, you know, for increased profits and more efficiency. And so we were for decades obsessed with efficiency and, and lower labor costs and just pushed everything to China. Now there's a incredibly sophisticated manufacturing infrastructure in China, especially for electronics. But the problem is we woke up one day and COVID was a huge wake up call where we realized there's more things to care about than just efficiency, profits and low labor costs. Because when you're as dependent on Asia as we've become for all of your manufacturing, when you need things like ventilators or PPE or pharmaceutical inputs or semiconductors, and you don't make enough in America, or in some cases, you don't make any in America, you're in trouble. So, you know, we're not saying everything should be made in America. That isn't what we want. That doesn't make sense. But enough of our most important goods, like semiconductors, which you mentioned, um, have to be made in America so we can control our destiny. And oh, by the way, create good jobs. So how do you bring back manufacturing to America? What are the tools? Yeah, like you said, this is easier said than done. There has to be a workforce component. So I told you about Rhode Island. My dad used to work days at the watch factory, come home, eat dinner, and go out at night and teach school at a place called the Jewelry Institute in Rhode Island, which was basically a vocational training school for people who wanted to go into the trade of watchmaking and and metallurgy. All that is, of course, gone. So we have to, and that's just one tiny example, but the same is true for tooling and designing and all kinds of skills that we've lost in America that we have to retrain people so they can work in high-end manufacturing facilities. So there's a huge workforce component that has to happen. The reality is there has to be some amount of government subsidy because it's incredibly expensive 
or not incredibly expensive. It's more expensive to build a big manufacturing operation in the United States than in China or Taiwan. So that's, you know, that's what the CHIPS Act does. It's kind of, you know, modern day industrial strategy. We, it's 30, 40, 50% more expensive to build a manufacturing facility in the U.S. versus Taiwan. So we're going to have to work with companies to provide that subsidy. And then it's the whole supply chain. So, for example, the president, I was with the president last week in Arizona and opening a new, huge, fantastic semiconductor manufacturing facility. But to make that successful, they need the suppliers here, which they have in Taiwan, which they have in China. You know, the chemical companies and the circuit board companies and, you know, all the suppliers. So this is a kind of a moonshot sort of a goal. Um, but if we get it right, and I think we will, it'll just pay dividends unbelievably over the next decade for America. For example, like when you think about the the states, the the Rust Belt states where they lost all this manufacturing, people didn't have jobs, you had an opioid crisis, like this could sort of reverse that that social problem, right? That's exactly right. I did a lot of work with the recovery community in Rhode Island and, and with the opioid crisis. In fact, we were the first state in the country to have medical assisted treatment in the prison system. And when I would talk to my friends and leaders in the community who were recovery experts, they would say the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connectedness. You need connectivity. And a job is is critical. Arguably the most important, you know, the most important thing to keeping someone in recovery is a job, you know, a community, a sense of purpose, a place to go, a paycheck. So you're not homeless, you know, healthcare. So I think you're right. And when, if we talk about economic security and I think even national security, it starts at home. You talked about China or China starts at home. It's not just having technology here. It's having a strong America that's healthy and working and connected. Are there vocational colleges that are a part of this? Yes, definitely. Uh, absolutely. Community colleges will play a huge role. Even high schools will. You know, there's a lot of career and technical education that could be done in high schools in partnership with companies. Uh, we've got to get kids right on, you know, right on this path. When I, again, dating myself, when I was in high school, there was like, a shop program for the boys and maybe the girls had home ec. So that's not what we want to do, but maybe, right. you know, but the concept of attracting 16, 17 year olds to a job and teaching them the skills in high schools, that's where we need to go. You know, they could be doing um, process engineering or being technicians in high school going to school and then going to Intel or coding or there's a thousand, not a thousand, but there's very many jobs. You know, you go to school and then after school, go to Intel for your internship or go to school and after school, go to, you know, a manufacturer to try out your skills. And by the way, it keeps kids in school. You know, I see it with my own kids. If you're learning calculus for a purpose, like you learn calculus in school and then go to a job and apply what you've learned... That's so much more interesting. You're more motivated. One of the things that I saw when you were governor was that because you had such a small state, you were able to deal with things that larger states weren't able to. You know, you were sort of head on with a bunch of different things. What did you find from your experience governing that is useful now? Oh, so so many things. 
By the way, I always thought that whatever you can do in a small place, you can do in a big place. And I still think that. And actually, that's all the skills I learned and what I worked on as governor. I'm applying here in a much, much bigger platform. Yeah. So, you know, it's about building coalitions of support, bipartisan coalitions of support, broad coalitions, you know, business and labor and community groups. Got to got to get buy-in from everybody. But it's just also, you know, as a leader, I, I just try to set the vision and be clear about it. Let everybody know why it matters. You know, when you talk about supply chains or national security or semiconductors, it'd be very easy for people's eyes to glaze over talking about semiconductors. But when you explain to people the reason you had to wait a year to buy your dishwasher or refrigerator during COVID or a car, or your car was so expensive, it's because we didn't have semiconductors, people care about it. So I think it's a whole combination of effective communication, making it relevant, and um, just getting buy-in. You know, got to work with people to get things done. It is also anti-inflationary. Big time. Absolutely. A year ago, thankfully, inflation seems to, there's some hopeful signs that what the Fed is doing is bringing down inflation. But you know, a year or so ago, a third of inflation was being driven by car prices. The reason car prices were so high is lack of semiconductors. I remember, again, like last summer, I would talk to the, the people who run Ford and GM, and they would have thousands of vehicles basically assembled, but they couldn't finish making them simply because they couldn't get their hands on one or two or five semiconductors. It was crazy. So there was no supply. So prices went up. Catherine Rampal, who I'm a big fan of, wrote a very smart piece. And she talked about how you take a lot of flack from both the right and the left, but that you have really worked hard on uh, talking to businesses and like figuring out what it is they need. I mean, is that your job is to sort of figure out how you can get them on board with the climate agenda and the manufacturing agenda? I mean, is that do you think of that as as part of your job? I don't know. I mean, I talk to everybody. Today, I'm hosting a big meeting with labor leaders. I don't know. My job and the way I get things done is talk to all people affected by the policies we're working on, touch base with them, learn from them, and then try to find a solution. So I think it's a bad, we're in a bad place if you get criticized just for talking to anyone. Right. You know, I think that's it's a really bad place and I'm going to resist that as long as I'm in public life. You don't agree with everyone you talk to, but shame on you if you're not willing to have the meeting, listen and learn. Right. And also, I mean, you have to meet with commerce leaders. You're the secretary of commerce. I mean, exactly. the job. Exactly. You were a VC before you were governor. How does that inform? I'd like to think I'm a little more entrepreneurial because of that. I think I am. I try to keep a fast pace because of that. And I've learned since being in Washington, I, I definitely just have a different perspective. Having come out of, you know, not having been in Washington for very long, you just, you ask different questions. So all of that has been helpful. But I also have just such an admiration for the American entrepreneur, American small business. Like I lived with so many entrepreneurs who, you know, they would sit down at night with their spouse and decide, okay, I'm going to write a check to my mortgage. I'm going to write a check to my grocery bills and I'm going to write a check into the company. And 
you got to admire that. Like that's what makes America great in so many ways. And so I'm just, I hold that with me when I do this job. And that's why we talk about making it, you know, America competitive. It's it's for all those people who take the risk and go out on a limb and and innovate and start a business. And we got to, we got to be there for them because that's, that's the envy of the world. American entrepreneurship, innovation, ability and willingness to risk take, that's the envy of the world. And we got to keep it going. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Secretary. All right. Have a good day. Bye. And now your moment of fuckery. Molly Jung fast. Jesse Cannon. I'd say this is a moment of fuckery, but it's really a moment of absolute stupidity. Donald Trump Jr. has tweeted this. I have to read this part because you can't see it because he has you blocked. Breaking! President Trump announces free speech policy plan for 2024. So basically, the story is, yesterday, Trump had tweeted that he had a big announcement. Some journalists took this seriously, thinking that perhaps he was announcing, I saw some speculation that he was announcing he might run for Speaker of the House, because you don't have to be a member of the House to run for Speaker of the House. But luckily... Life is not the West Wing, though I don't know that Trump being Speaker of the House would be the West Wing, more like Veep. But we had seen some speculation about this, but it turns out, in fact, Trump's big announcement was was $99 trading cards. NFT trading cards. Yes, an NFT. And, uh, And that was his announcement. Then there was a little bit of embarrassment because it was so stupid. And so Don Jr. always won to try to save his father from embarrassment, ironically or not ironically, decided that he was going to tweet out Trump's new policy platform. And you remember Trump has no policies. So his policies, when he does cook them up, are pretty amazing. So he's going to restore free speech overview. By the way, restoring free speech overview, that's what the uh, document is titled. He is basically his entire legislative platform is based on the fact that he was taken off Twitter, as far as I can tell. (laughs) It seems like that there's one dig at DeSantis in here. It's nice he has something new to do. Right. I mean, ban federal agencies from colluding to censor American citizenship. So like, don't take him off Twitter. Ban taxpayer dollars from being used to label speech as myths and disinformation. Don't, you know, nobody say that COVID anti-vax stuff is not true. Fire every federal bureaucrat who is engaged in domestic censorship, whatever that that's, means. That's you, Governor Yudkid, for that CRT banning. Right. Revise Section 230 to drastically curtail big platforms' power to restrict lawful speech. It's basically this entire legislative platform based solely on him having been removed from Twitter. Uh, yeah, so we'll see how that goes. But uh, that is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. 
Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.